0: Hi, I'm Anisha Dua and I'm an associate professor at Northwestern University. And I'm talking to you guys today from Chicago, Illinois. And today I will be talking about the gold standard tapering of glucocorticoids in polymyalgia rheumatica or PMR. Now, whenever we talk about a gold standard, it gets tricky because in practice, so many factors influence the way that we approach glucocorticoids and tapering in PMR. But I'll start off with describing the ACRULAR guidelines that were developed in 2015. Now remember, these are guidelines based on the best available data at that time, and they're intended for guiding practicing clinicians, but they are not rules for managing every PMR patient. So point one, the guidelines recommend using the minimum effective glucocorticoid dose for initial treatment, and the range provided is between 12.5 and 25 milligrams of prednisone daily. Now, there was unanimous agreement that patients requiring higher doses, more than 30 milligrams of glucocorticoids, should really be assessed for an alternative diagnosis, because there's really not a lot of evidence for a benefit from a higher dose regimen in PMR. They also discourage using a starting dose of less than 7.5 milligrams. But within this range, which side do you pick? In patients with a higher risk of relapse and low risk for adverse events, you might opt for the higher dose range. And in patients at a lower risk of relapse or with significant comorbidities, you might opt for starting at the lower dose range. But this begs the question, who are these people who have a higher risk of relapse? Factors include female sex, highly elevated inflammatory markers, and that's defined as a said rate of more than 40, and those who have peripheral inflammatory arthritis. Now, comorbidities that might influence a provider to use doses in the lower range include things like diabetes, osteoporosis, glaucoma, and so on. Now in practice, the majority of patients will fall into this high-risk relapse group. Females with a said rate more than 40, but many of them will also have a comorbidity that makes you want to start a lower dose if possible. What do I generally do? This is point two. In most of my PMR patients, I start with a dose of 15 milligrams daily. Fewer than 1% of patients with PMR initially treated with prednisone doses of 15 milligrams a day require higher doses to control their symptoms. And typically, we see very rapid improvement with the initiation of glucocorticoids, usually within a few days. But if the symptoms don't improve in two to four weeks, the diagnosis really should be reconsidered. Okay, so what's next? How do we actually taper? Once the patient achieves clinical remission, the guidelines recommend that glucocorticoids should be tapered to a dose of 10 milligrams a day within four to eight weeks. If they continue to do well, then the prednisone should be tapered by one milligram every four weeks. Of course, if you don't have one milligram tablets, you can use alternate day dosing, for example, seven and a half alternating with five milligrams every other day. But based on this regimen, a perfectly responding patient with PMR can be tapered off of glucocorticoids at a minimum of 10 months from their first prednisone dose. I do have some incredible colleagues who are a little bit bolder than I am and attempt to taper their patients off of glucocorticoids in 12 to 16 weeks from their diagnosis of PMR. Now, this is based on data from the placebo arms of some randomized control trials in PMR, where about 20% of patients are able to rapidly taper the prednisone without having flares. Of course, in the other 80%, the dose can be increased when they do relapse. But this brings up the point that for those who relapse during glucocorticoid tapering, the prednisone dose should be increased to the pre-relapse dose and then decreased gradually within four to eight weeks to the dose at which that relapse occurred. Point three. I'm personally not as aggressive in my steroid tapering regimen, and I tend to stick closer to the guidelines in terms of getting to about 10 milligrams daily after eight weeks, and then tapering closer to about one to two milligrams about every six weeks, of course, taking into account patient comorbidities and tolerance. The other thing that the guidelines recommend is using daily dosing instead of BID dosing so as to not disrupt the HPA access. And in most patients, I do use daily dosing, but in patients with prominent nighttime pain or symptoms, it's reasonable to use split dosing with the higher doses in the morning. Now, in real life, a systematic review of PMR patients show that many patients with PMR are still on glucocorticoids way beyond the time of their diagnosis, 77% at one year, 51% at two years, and 25% still on glucocorticoids at five years. We also know that about 65% of PMR patients develop glucocorticoids glucocorticoid-related adverse effects. So in an ideal world, we would have predictive factors or biomarkers that would help us to risk stratify these patients in regards to relapse risk and identify the best tapering strategy based on this. Currently, that doesn't exist, and patients with PMR often deal with significant side effects from glucocorticoids and remain on prolonged therapy. Luckily, there have been advancements in the field that have created a path For using other medications to enable glucocorticoid tapering in our patients, especially those who don't tolerate steroids or who flare while the steroids are tapered. So all of what I just told you basically means that there is no gold standard for tapering steroids in PMR. As providers, we have to individually assess each patient and taper as quickly as we can while keeping the debilitating symptoms of their disease under control. My recommendation would be to start around 15 milligrams of prednisone daily Taper by two and a half milligrams every month until 10 milligram daily, and then continue to try to taper at a rate of one to two milligrams every six weeks while monitoring clinical symptoms and inflammatory markers. And don't forget to screen for signs and symptoms that can GCA at each visit with your PMR patients. Thanks so much for listening.
1: Hi, this is Robert Spira from the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. And I'll be speaking today about a question which is whether IL-6 inhibiting therapies should be used early or late in the course of treating patients with polymyalgia rheumatica. And it's exciting to be able to have this conversation because it's only in the past year that we have an approved non-corticosteroid therapy for polymyalgia rheumatica that's been shown to be effective in a well-done clinical trial. We know polymyalgia rheumatica is among the most common inflammatory disorders we encounter and is perhaps the or the most common or second most common inflammatory disorder in patients over the age of 50. We know it's exquisitely responsive to corticosteroids, with which we are all familiar, both the good, the bad, and the ugly. Corticosteroids work very well in polymyalgia, and they work quickly, but they come at a price in terms of side effects over time. And in most case series of polymyalgia rheumatica, patients often require often greater than one year and often greater than two or even five years of therapy with some doses of corticosteroids. And up to 65% of patients have one or more significant side effects of steroids over the course of their treatment. So there really was a need for better steroid-sparing therapies. And we had tried in the past some of our traditional disease-modifying drugs, such as methotrexate, but there was no great compelling evidence in clinical trials, or at least in my clinical experience, that they were helpful. There was also the recognition that the biology of polymyalgia rheumatica was becoming better understood, and that interleukin-6 was a pivotal player in polymyalgia rheumatica, and that there were available IL-6 blocking therapies that had been approved for rheumatoid arthritis, namely cerilumab and tocilizumab. And starting about six, seven years ago, some data started to come out suggesting that this strategy could be very effective in polymyalgia rheumatica. Our group was uh, uh, fortunate to lead A study of 10 patients, an open label study in new polymyalgia rheumatica, where we treated patients in an open label fashion with tocilizumab and a very rapid steroid taper. Patients were tapered off steroids within four months. And all of the patients continued on tocilizumab when it was in the monthly infusion uh, form of delivery for 12 months, and all stayed in remission compared to a a contemporaneous cohort of patients that were matched, not part of the trial, um, but were matched for their demographics and disease characteristics. And we found those patients used much more steroids than did our tocilizumab-treated patients, and were much more likely to relapse and had a much longer course of therapy, approximately 14 months, as opposed to our patients on tocilizumab, where they were treated with no more than four months of corticosteroids. But better studies were developed subsequently, looking at both refractory polymyalgia rheumatica, but also new onset polymyalgia rheumatica. So the SPARE study which was published about two years ago at this point, looked at new patients with polymyalgia rheumatica, and they were randomized to either placebo or tocilizumab, and they were treated with a very rapid steroid taper. Steroids were tapered to off over 11 weeks. And then the patient's disease activity and cumulative cumulative steroid doses, et cetera, were looked at at 16 weeks and 24 weeks. And patients treated with tocilizumab as first-line therapy in new-onset disease clearly fared better with regard to less cumulative steroid exposure, but also greater chances of remaining in remission, and conversely, a lower chance of relapsing. Two other studies looked at a more refractory group of patients. The semaphore study was a complex study looking at approximately 100 patients with refractory polymyalgia rheumatica. And treatment with tocilizumab compared to treatment with placebo was associated with a much better chance of achieving low glucocorticoid dosing on a daily basis or low activity score of PMR. And they had a composite outcome that clearly favored treatment with tocilizumab. And then finally, there was the SAFR study that was presented at last year's ACR convergence, which looked at, again, a refractory group of PMR patients, patients who had flared within the prior three months when still on a dose of steroids greater than 7.5 milligrams daily. And this is a group of patients we all encounter in practice. And in that study of approximately 111 patients, it was shown that treatment with tocilizumab and a very rapid steroid taper over 14 weeks was associated with a much greater chance of achieving sustained remission than treatment with placebo and a full one-year course of steroids. So despite the um, cerulamab group receiving only 14 weeks of glucocorticoids, they were three times more likely to achieve the primary outcome over the course of that year compared to patients treated with placebo um and the longer course of prednisone. So basically from trial data, what we have is data, you know, clearly suggesting that IL-6 inhibition, either with tocilizumab or cerillumab, is effective. The FDA has approved cerulumab based on the SAFR study, for the treatment of refractory polymyalgia rheumatica. So that's the niche for which it has achieved regulatory approval, because that was a study done in a refractory population. But there's pretty strong proof of principle studies suggesting that new onset disease would also be successfully treated with IL-6 inhibitors. So how do we approach the patients with this? Well, The easiest answer is that it's clear that in patients with refractory disease, IL-6 inhibition with cerillumab, which is the drug that's been approved, would be effective and is approved. In that study, by the way, patients also demonstrated better outcomes with regard regard to quality of life and functional measures. That was more of an exploratory outcome, but I think very important and meaningful to our patients. But that doesn't mean that cerillumab or tocilizumab would not be effective up front in these patients. And I think this becomes a very personalized decision. And obviously, there are practical barriers that could prevent access to an IL-6 inhibitor early in the disease course, based on what has achieved regulatory approval and what hasn't. But assuming cost was no object and access was no object, there are probably patients for whom upfront would make sense, or cerulumab would make sense. Um, patients, let's say, who are very frail, patients with very brittle diabetes, patients with very tenuous neuropsychiatric strategies, you may want to be more aggressive up front in terms of hoping not to use steroids or minimize the use of steroids. So I think the jury is still out on this question. And even setting aside regulatory approvals, I think in terms of what is best for our patients, recognizing that some patients may do very well with a relatively brief course of steroids. Um, Most patients don't. And there may be particularly vulnerable patients for whom IL-6 inhibition early on would make sense. And this is so clear that there is not a clear answer that this is the subject of the great debate at this year's upcoming ACR convergence meeting in San Diego this
2: November. Thanks very much. Hi again, it's Mike Putman from the Medical College of Wisconsin. Happy to be back on Room Now as part of the Polymenodramatica or PMR campaign. Now, I last appeared here to discuss, and I guess somewhat wound up calling it more of a rant than a discussion, but whatever, uh, rheumatoid arthritis ILD. If you haven't checked out that coverage on Room Now, I highly recommend it. The subject of my discussion rant at that point was overdiagnosis, which I define loosely as making people into patients unnecessarily. In the case of polymyndromatic or PMR, that means telling someone with PMR that they actually have giant cell arteritis unnecessarily. So let me tell you about how that happens. Now, we all know there's this relationship between PMR and GCA, right? About 50% of GCA patients have PMR symptoms, and about 10% of patients with PMR will have GCA diagnosis or will develop GCA over the course of their disease. Now, I screen for GCA at every patient visit by asking my PMR patients if they have any symptoms of GCA. I also listen for axillary breweries and check temporal arteries for tenderness If patients have signs or symptoms of GCA, then, you know, I work them up as such. That's what we do as rheumatologists, right? But lately, I have been concerned to hear other doctors advocating for screening all PMR patients with imaging. Now, recommendations vary by center and availability, but they include ultrasound, CT angiogram, MR angiogram, or even PET CTs. Now, I think you can see where this is headed, but I'll spell it out for you one more time overdiagnosis. Now, for decades, we've been screening GCA with a patient history and exam. Doing so with imaging would be a sharp departure from the current standard of care. And you may be asking yourself, well, yeah, but what could it hurt? Don't you want to catch GCA early? Let me tell you the problems with this. Now, first, this would be expensive. The yearly incidence of PMR is something like one in a thousand patients over the age of 50. Extrapolate that over the whole United States, and you get 55,000 new diagnoses per, per year, give or take. MR angiograms on all of those patients would cost over $100 million per year. Now, that's not a negligible cost. Sure, CTA would be cheaper. PET-CT would be more expensive. And I just don't know where this is going to land if we actually implemented it. Now, the second and more important to me, honestly, would be HARM. Now, many of these patients will get CT angiograms, so you'll be causing many of these patients to have acute kidney injury and contrast-induced nephropathy. That is is a harm. You're also going to find incidentalomas. So these random little bumps and nodules that wind up getting biopsied or surveilled. In the, the NLST, which is this really big screening study where they did CT scans of chest to look for cancer, You know, the number needed to harm by telling someone that they may have cancer when they didn't was one in 19 patients. That's pretty high. And if we're screening everybody, we're going to start to do that. The the harm from an unnecessary biopsy is even harder. Think about a PET CT, which is probably going to be the worst of these, where you're finding tons and tons of little inflammatory schmutz. And then you have to figure out what to do with all of that. It's going to be a big problem. Now, third, and perhaps most importantly, honestly, is overtreatment. Overdiagnosis doesn't always beget overtreatment, but in this case, it's very clear to see how that would happen. And the problem with overtreatment is, of course, more harm. Now we all know how different the steroid regimens between GCA and PMR can be, right? Roughly one in four patients who presents with purely PMR symptoms um, but get screened with imaging will wind up being re-categorized. So this isn't like a small thing that we'll be doing to a small number of people. There's going to be tens of thousands of patients per year who suddenly go from, oh, let's do 15 milligrams and taper you quickly to a mig per keg of steroid and immediately starting a biologic agent. And then, you know, suffering the enormous consequences of long-term harm that comes with glucocorticoids. Again, that's tens of thousands of patients who you already know in your practice, who you have followed for years. And let me ask you a question, because these people exist. How many of your PMR patients have ever lost vision? And, and, and that's the crux of the problem, right? All this screening and overdiagnosis and overtreatment, and, and for what? There have been no studies to date that show that this prevents vision loss. There have been no studies that have evaluated how harmful the additional steroids and biologics will be. I mean, we all know that escalating from 15 milligrams of steroid to 80 milligrams of steroid is going to be harmful, but we have no idea how to categorize it, but you know, I can tell you it's there. No studies have also asked what it it does to tell someone that they have a subclinical disease that may make them blind and then give them a ton of steroids and then ask them how their quality of life improved. I could see this making patients on net much less happy and much less thriving. Now, an abstract at this year's ACR convergence meeting followed a group of these patients and observed a high rate of flares among those who had the subclinical GCA. But, But so what? So they had more flares. I don't need a PET CT to find a flare. I see my patients regularly. They call me when they're having a flare and we bump the steroids if that happens. I have never once had someone with PMR lose vision while doing that. And I imagine that most of you will echo that sentiment. So in conclusion, I do not think universal screening with imaging for PMR is ready for prime time. I've said it before and I'll say it again. There are no solutions in rheumatology. There are only trade-offs and the trade-off here is expensive imaging, incidentalomas, unnecessary contrast, excessive unnecessary potentially corticosteroid exposure. And, and honestly, the ever-present anguish of your overdiagnosed patients experience when they've been told they have GCN they could go blind. I mean that that's not a benign thing to do. The benefits here remain unsubstantiated, although I could imagine there being some, but they're at this point they're theoretical. So until that changes, I say no to universal screening in PMR. Uh thanks so much for having me. Appreciate room now for uh putting on this series. Uh, and everyone have a great day. Mm-hmm. I'm Eric Madison. I am emeritus professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester,
3: Minnesota. And I would like to today talk about some of the challenges and things that we need to pursue in the future to advance our understanding of PMR and improve the treatment of patients who have polymyalgia rheumatica. I think I'd like to start by saying that even though PMR is not perceived by many physicians as a severe diagnosis, its diagnosis and management actually pose significant challenges. In recent years, uh, the supportive role of imaging and diagnosis and classification has been actively investigated, but there's still a lot to do with imaging. Although imaging data may add to clinical evaluation, clinical decisions cannot rely exclusively on imaging at present, at least in my view. The therapeutic options for patients with PMR are expanding and they probably will expand in the coming years. There have been numerous small trials of benefits of targeted therapies, including tocilizumab, rituximab and jack inhibitors, but larger controlled trials of some of these agents are needed and some are actually ongoing. So as we think about these challenges in the future of the science of PMR, we have a number of things to consider. Firstly, regarding diagnosis. We actually have no specific diagnostic test for PMR, but better genomic and pharmacogenomic characterization of PMR from blood and tissue is needed, and that will help us with diagnosis. And relatedly, um, further study of the phenotype and outcome of people who have PMR who present with subclinical vasculitis is needed so that we can separate these patients effectively. And regarding biomarkers for disease activity and severity, um, we clearly need more work here. One example of this need is that IL-6 blockers suppress IL-6 and CRP, but this does not necessarily translate into remission as we've seen in studies of anti-IL-6 and GCA and even in PMR. So in developing these new therapies, uh, we have some challenges. Uh, for one thing, because PMR without con- commitment to GCA does not lead to permanent organ damage, but does target age individuals who have increased vulnerabilities, especially immunologic vulnerabilities and cardiovascular vulnerabilities. The risk-benefit ratio of new therapies which could convey increased risk for infection or vascular morbidity needs to be carefully weighed. I'm always struck that a lot of practitioners think that PMR is a disease of one to two years. I'm not so certain. We followed patients with PMR for decades and we see that it is often recrudescent after months or even years of seeming quiescence. So, A question is, does the disease ever go away? That is, is there ever really a cure or is it a chronic condition? And if so, can we we predict in which patients it will be chronic and long lasting? The challenges of evaluation in these trials have underlined the need for better assessment tools to address these questions and to evaluate remission and relapses as well as other relevant outcomes. So when we think about these responses to therapy, the current criteria for response don't always really reflect disease status of activity or remission. We see this, for example, in the discordance between the current biomarkers that we use and patient reported disease, they're often discordant. What we need are long longitudinal studies of outcomes, mortality, and comorbidities, like cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease, and malignancies that relate not only to the natural history of PMR, but also in order to understand the effects of various therapies on this disease. So it will be important to evaluate, for example, the long-term morbidity of low-dose steroids. We need to study if the use of glucocorticoids-bearing agents leads to a reduction in GC-related outcomes. We have some recent data actually that very low dose steroids, such as those used to maintain patients in remission in PMR is is not associated with increased risk for cardiovascular disease or diabetes. And so we have to put that information in the context of the cost and the risks of new drugs that we might use. And then we need to assess when and in whom treatments can be stopped once remission is achieved, or in other words, we need to investigate the difference between long-term remission and cure of disease. So one way of doing this is with a recently suggested strategy, which is called treat-to-target. And if we're going to think about using treat-to-target, it behooves us to conduct a study of treat-to-target compared to conventional care. And in order to do that, we need to develop evidence-based definitions of response, remission, and relapse in PMR. We need a definition of refractory disease, and we need to work out tools that adequately assess disease activity, disease activity states, and patient reported outcomes, including fatigue and health-related quality of life, for example. Um, So in the context of response, then, we have to ask ourselves, and we need to work on better biomarkers of disease activities. We need to define better predictors of disease response. We need to better assess the role of imaging as a treatment target because we really haven't done that yet. And we need to investigate the significance of ongoing imaging signs of inflammation in patients who are in clinical remission. We need to define low disease activity states, and uh, we need to study the outcome of patients with persistently low disease activity. That is those patients who have slight elevation, for example, of acute phase reactants without other explanation with regard to long-term outcomes. And we need to compare the outcomes of patients with low disease activity without treatment versus patients in remission on long-term low disease activities. So I think that these are some of the challenges and some of the directions that we can pursue in PMR to improve the science of PMR and improve the outcomes of patients who suffered from this disease. I'd like to thank you for your interest in this uh, discussion and also for your engagement in addressing these many challenges.